welcome. Uh, this is uh, AUL2 for those keeping score on the upper limb. Uh, we'll start uh, firstly by um, thanking a number of people who've um, sent um, communications, uh, emails and um, uh, also contributions to um, Gary and Colm in Ireland, Bill, Ram, Colm and Greg in Dallas, Henri in Lyon, uh, Jan in Leuven and Bob Yanni, Janice and Meredith, all from Adelaide in Australia. I really appreciate your uh, contributions. Um, some have suggested that we do uh, one a podcast on embryology uh, of the face. Uh, I think that's a really good idea. I'll do that later this year. Uh, there have been several who want neuroanatomy for general surgeons. That's, <laughs> that's easier said than done, but I will... Uh, put together uh, perhaps uh, three or so podcasts on that. And one uh, wanted um, an overview, uh, which I think is a good idea, of the autonomic nervous system of the body beyond the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. So <clears throat> those will all be done somewhere during this year. Um, these things take a little time to organise um, on my part, but certainly uh, they're all on my radar. So I really appreciate your input. Um, for those who want to make a contribution, um, it is just um, patron.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash anatopod, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D. I'll put it on the listing here. Anatopod is all in capital, so patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. Uh, I really appreciate uh, that. Now, today's... Um, podcast is on the pectoral girdle and I think if one considers a limb girdle as the connection of a limb to the axial skeleton then there are clearly some developmental and structural similarities between the upper limb and the lower limb. There's some upper limb and lower limb homology in other words. So in the upper limb the bones of relevance for the pectoral or shoulder girdle are the clavicle which we've already studied and the scapula only the sternoclavicular joint attaches the girdle to the axial skeleton, and hence the only joint that joins these two participating bones is then the acromioclavicular joint. And that means that the rest of the girdle attachment is all muscular, and that this accounts for a wider range of mobility than in the lower limb. Now, for what it's worth, the bones of the upper limb and the lower limb are structurally homologous, where in the lower limb, the ilium, pubis and ischium, uh, each supported by a nerve per compartment, has its homologue, the scapula, considered as a dorsal or proper scapula, and a ventral or coracoid scapula, which are fused with an epiphyseal line of fusion evident across the upper cavity of the glenoid. So these parts of the scapula are then the homologues of the ilium and the ischium of the pelvic girdle, respectively, with the counterpart of the pubis, the precoracoid process, although that really takes no part in the shoulder joint. Of course, there's no counterpart in the lower limb for the clavicle. As I've said in the previous podcast, the clavicle is anchored medially and laterally by very strong ligaments, the costoclavicular and the coracoclavicular, respectively. 
for obvious reasons, because the articular surface of both the sternoclavicular and craniocalicular joints are so small, and yet the joints are uh, very stable. Now, the muscular arrangement, as I've stated, is complicated because of the way I've presented this, by a thoracoacranial articulation that has the scapula as an intermediary. So there are therefore, as we've said before in the previous podcast, vertebroscapular or axioscapular muscles, those running from the axial skeleton, which includes the ribs, to the scapula. Muscles that run from the scapula to the arm, those are the Schwarzscapular muscles or the rotator cuff, and the guy rope long restraining muscles running from broad axial origins with short humeral attachments, pec major and latissimus dorsi. So I'm really reinforcing what we went through in the last podcast. Now, the muscular arrangement, or more correctly, should I say, the neuromuscular arrangement, shows a particular fidelity. Uh, what I mean by that is that these muscles are innervated by the brachial plexus. The wide origin of the latissimus dorsi, for example, doesn't change the fact that it's developed as an upper limb muscle, and it's innervated, therefore, by the posterior divisions of the brachial plexus. The nerve supply is the giveaway to the muscle origin, and once the motor supply of a muscle is established in the embryo, it cannot change. And there are, for example, other muscles which migrate to the limb, and they can gain attachment from the trunk to the girdle, like the trapezius, but of course their innovation is not from the brachial plexus. The sternocleidomastoids another example. Of course, both of these muscles develop as occipital somites with the spinal accessory nerve. So we said the system is not a basic glenohumeral or simple shoulder movement, but rather a complicated thoracohumeral articulation that moves the clavicle and scapula, along with, as I've said before, the sternoclavicular and acromioclavicular joints reciprocally. So what are these vertebroscapular muscles or muscles that come from the axial skeleton or the ribs or costal cartilages and which go to the scapula. Again, there's a lot of, uh, you know, anatomy um, uh, teachers who are saying these days that origins and insertions are not important, but clearly they, in in my view, they are in order to understand this uh, conceptually. We'll call these what I might call sort of level one muscles, if you think. And they're six in number, which we'll go through. The trapezius, the pectoralis minor, the levator scapulae, the subclavius, the rhomboids major and minor, and serratus anterior. Now, sadly, (laughs) these each require separate study. So let's start with those. The trapezius. Now this is a muscle you first see from the back when we traditionally turned the cadaver over and started our posterior dissection. Perhaps an odd muscle to begin with then, but it's a diamond-shaped muscle, a lot of which is tenderness, and it has a massive origin. It attaches to the skull and extends right down to all of the thoracic vertebrae. So more correctly, from the medial third of the superior nuchal line, down to the spine of C7, which is so prominent that we can feel it on anybody, and uh, where we call it the vertebra prominence, which is the spinous process of C7, and with attachments to the ligamentum nuchae, which runs from the external occipital protuberance and the vertebral spine. Below this, it attaches 
to the spinous processes of all of the thoracic vertebrae and their interconnecting so-called supraspinous ligaments. Supraspinous is not a great term, but that's really, that would be better called interspinous, but uh, all of those uh, connections. Now this means that there's an occipital fibre insertion of the trapezius into the lateral third of the clavicle, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, and thence along the medial border of the acromion from above downwards, and then serially into the crest of the spine of the scapula. The lowest half dozen or so thoracic spines forms a rather narrow recurved tendon, this is of the, the origin of that muscle, to insert into the medial and the inframedial, or if you prefer it, the vertebral portion of the spine of the scapula. And as this area is fairly bare, there's usually a small isolated bursa here. So the medial side of the scapula we're going to refer to as the vertebral side, the lateral as the axillary side. Now the nerve supply, as we know, is the spinal accessory nerve, but there are also branches which are proprioceptive, coming from the cervical plexus, usually separately from C3 and C4. So there's likely a sort of positional, kind of in-space, reflex arc that may be created within this muscle. By virtue of its long origin and tight insertion, the action is therefore complex and rotational. It's a bit like a winch or a wingnut. Now, it clearly draws the scapula towards the midline, that is, it retracts the scapula, but of course we've already got the rhomboids to do that job. The upper fibres help rotate the glenoid upwards, so that assists in shoulder abduction, but the upper fibres lift the acromion, and the lower fibres actually depress the scapular spine, so there is that dual wingnut action which I just alluded to. That lower scapular depression is not an isolated movement. It's strongly contributed to by the lowermost interdigitations, as they're called, of the serratus anterior muscle. The upper fibres clearly elevate the scapula, they shrug the shoulders. But of course we have a named scapular elevator already present, the levator scapulae. And that's important in not allowing the scapula really to slacken off and fall down if, for example, we're doing some heavy lifting, that's where this muscle becomes important. The trapezius acting alone laterally flexes the neck, of course, but acting with the other side, it extends the neck. So if there's an accessory nerve injury, that's an iatrogenic injury often when a posterior triangle lymph node has been removed, the shrugging of the shoulders is weak. Of course it's not absent because, as I've said, you've got the levator scapulae. But the posterior triangle lymph node was an old... Uh, trainee or what we call registrar operation but it, it did injure this rather superficially located accessory nerve and a couple of reminders we went through the accessory nerve uh, last year in the podcasts of the head and neck but the accessory nerve runs just deep to the investing layer of deep cervical fascia in that posterior triangle so it's relatively superficial and it runs from the junction of the upper third and the lower two-thirds of the sternocleidomastoid across the posterior triangle of the neck to the junction of the lower third and the upper two-thirds of trapezius. You can revise that in AHN1 of the Head and Neck podcast last year uh, on this list uh, on the triangles and fascia of the neck. And another way of sort of projecting it in space is to draw a plumb bob line from the mastoid process to the tip of the shoulder and it kind of runs at that tangent.
So usually taking, people taking out a lymph node in the posterior triangle could job, as we say, the, uh, or prang the, uh, the accessory nerve, damage it. And um, there weren't many things in the posterior triangle that you needed to take a node out for. Uh, usually it was lymphoma. Rubella produces posterior triangle nodes. And these days things are dealt with by fine needle aspiration cytology. So that's the trapezius. Part two of this group one muscles is then the pectoralis minor. Now this has a very special place. It's not a significant muscle, but it's an important landmark. It is the split of the clavipectoral fascia, as I've said many times, and defines the parts of the axillary artery. That a bit above is called the first part, behind the pectoralis minor, the second part, and below the third part, with the branches being one for the first part, two for the second part, three for the third part. We'll be discussing this um, in the uh, next podcast on the axilla. Um, this also, the pectoralis minor, defines not only the levels of the axillary artery, the bit above, behind and below the pectoralis minor, but it also defines the types or levels of axillary lymph node dissection, um, which might be performed particularly in breast cancer. And so a level 1 dissection is below the pectoralis minor. A level 2 lymphadenectomy is behind and includes typically the intrapectoral region to remove the so-called interpectoral nodes of Schrotter. And above the pectoralis minor, up to the level of the first rib, is a level 3 axillary lymphadenectomy. Now, by contrast to the pectoralis major, which has a costal attachment, the pectoralis minor has a bony attachment. And that's usually to the third and the fourth and the fifth ribs, just in front of the angles. But like the brachial plexus, the pectoralis minor can be prefixed with a higher origin or postfixed with a lower origin. So in other words, second, third, fourth ribs, or fourth, fifth, sixth, that kind of thing. And maybe uh, tenderness, uh, additional insertions. So the insertion itself is not only prefixed or postfixed, but it can be expanded or contracted. Very much like the brachial plexus as well. That can be prefixed or postfixed. We'll have a separate podcast on that. It too can be expanded in its nerve root origin or contracted. So it's a little bit more complicated than one uh, thinks of in the standard <coughs> in the standard way. Uh, the insertion is into the medial, the insertion of pectoralis minor is into the medial rim of the coracoid process near, but separate from the insertion of the short head of biceps and the coracobrachialis, which are both of which are really nearer the tip of the coracoid process, so that the insertion is into the front through a little divot, and if you got a scapula, you can see usually a little impression on the bone there. The significance of the muscle in the separation of the axillary artery is also in the definition of the disposition of the cords of the brachial plexus, because we define those as... <coughs> <coughs> their relationship <coughs> dear me, to the second portion of the auxiliary artery so that one cord disposes laterally, that then becomes the lateral cord, one is medial and the other is posterior to the artery, hence the lateral cord, the medial cord and the posterior cord. Now the um, nerve supply typically pierces the muscle and enters the overlying pectoralis major. This is actually the uh, <coughs> the medial pectoral nerve, C8T1. 
and it's something typically visualised when you lift up the pectoralis major minor, uh, major muscle uh, in both the cadaver or during a mastectomy. Some like last have argued that both pectoral nerves supply it, that's pectoralis minor, but I actually think that the medial pectoral is its main supply. And this means that the innervation of the pectoralis major is from all of the roots of the brachial plexus. That includes the lateral pectoral nerve, the C567, and the medial pectoral nerve, the C8T1. And also that the medial pectoral nerve lies lateral to the lateral pectoral nerve. This is a commonly asked question. Uh, of course, the medial pectoral nerve is named after its origin from the medial cord and not from its position. So, to reiterate, the lateral pectoral nerve is medial to the medial pectoral nerve because its origin is the lateral cord. Got it? So, does the muscle do anything? Well, pectoralis minor we're talking about. It protracts the scapula along with the serratus anterior and it regulates the position of the scapula as we abduct our arm. It is, of course, an historical muscle. Uh, I think also in that the radical mastectomy that was initially performed for breast cancer was the removal of the pectoralis major and pectoralis minor. That was the old Halstead radical mastectomy. And then David Patey from England, subsequently in the 1960s, preserved the pectoralis major muscle because of the deformity that was produced, but removed the underlying pectoralis minor muscle and the interpectoral nodes. Uh, which I've mentioned, and that was called a modified radical mastectomy, or also called a patey mastectomy. So that knowledge of the muscle and its removal was an oncological part, historically, of the mastectomy operation. Of course, it was subsequently shown that stage for stage, the survival and loco-regional recurrence rates for a halsted radical mastectomy and a patey modified radical mastectomy were equivalent. And I mention these names because, of course, as anatomists, which I, I think I can call myself now, we are taught these days not to teach this kind of stuff. And I happen to think, again, that the history of this is important to understanding and anchoring our anatomy if we do. And uh, the ultra-radical mastectomy, for example, coming back to that for the medial quadrant breast cancer, removing the medial ribs down to the extra-plural space, uh, was the so-called super-radical or urban mastectomy after the American oncologist in the 1960s, Jerome Urban, who promoted this rather disfiguring idea. I still must say I was involved with a few urban mastectomies at the start of my surgical career in the late uh, 70s. Well, we've got to continue, I think, with this dreary <coughs> discussion of the origin and insertions of these muscles, because if we understand this group 1 muscles, vertebrae, uh, scapular muscles, we'll understand a lot about shoulder movement and even access, particularly in thoracotomies and so on. So the third of the group is levator scapulae. This, as we saw last year, is in the scalene muscular podcast, uh, runs in the floor of the posterior triangle of the neck next door to the scalenus posterior, and sandwiched against the splenius muscle. It takes its origin from the posterior tubicles of the upper four cervical vertebrae as kind of little tenderness connections. And that forms a, a composite, rather slender, single belly, which runs backwards, and which is inserted into the upper angle of the scapula. 
and that's the rounded part at the junction of the superior and auxiliary borders of the scapula. Labator scapula too is uh, supplied, or labator scapula as well, if I can say, is supplied in its innovation by the C3-4 components of the cervical plexus. But it does have a definitive brachial plexus nerve supply from the roots of C5 through the dorsal scapula. This one also importantly innovates that nerve, the rhomboid, so that in a brachial plexus root distraction, and I'll talk about that uh, when uh, we go to the brachial plexus podcast, the one after next, in a brachial plexus root distraction, the scapula can't be braced backwards. And I'm going to return to this important point when we go through that brachial plexus and, you know, in clinically using the anatomy to decide whether or not brachial plexus injuries are potentially uh, repairable. Um, fourth in this group is the subclavius muscle, and this small, rather insignificant muscle comes from the costochondral junction from the first rib and is inserted into a groove, the subclavian groove, on the undersurface of the clavicle. We've seen that area already before. It too is embraced by the clavipectoral fascia, likely protects the subclavian vein when the clavicle is broken or comminuted. And it keeps the rib margin against the clavicle. It's innervated by the nerve to subclavius, which typically has roots C5 and 6, but which can come from the upper trunk of the brachial plexus on occasion rather than taking its origin from the roots. And again, I'd remind um, students to return to the relevant head and neck podcast from 2020 to assess this nerve's contribution to the variant of the so-called accessory phrenic nerve, which can sometimes even pierce the subclavian vein at this point. And in this variant, this nerve can loop over the subclavian vein and replace the phrenic or some of the phrenic. In such a case, a brachial plexus injury at the roots can, in theory, paralyse the diaphragm. The next is the um, serratus anterior. Now, that's a thick sheet of muscle clothing the side of the thorax. It's the medial wall of the axilla. We're going to speak about the axilla and the axillary walls in the next podcast. But if we understand the muscles around the axilla, we'll understand that too. The serratus anterior arises as a segmented series of interdigitations from the upper eight ribs. We want to use these particular terms when we're talking about them in exams. The highest interdigitation is evident in the floor of the posterior triangle of the neck. The origins on the outer edges of the first and the second ribs are clearly evident. If you look at those ribs, you can see ridge markings on them. And the insertion of the serratus anterior, even though it's very segmental in its origin, is into the upper angle of the scapula. That's the upper part from the first and second interdigitation, which is innervated by C5, then the third and fourth digitations, uh, which uh, come from the third and fourth ribs, inserts narrowly into the length of the costal surface of the scapula. You want to take out a scapula if you have one and uh, <coughs> confirm that point. And that extends to a very narrow strip at the vertebral border of the scapula, and all of this has a C6 innervation. And then the lower 
four digitations which arise from the fifth, the sixth, the seventh and the eighth ribs, their outer surfaces, they interdigitate their origins with the fibres of the external oblique muscle as the outer abdominal muscle. At the anterior rib angles, and these are then thick flesh which inserts into the angle of the scapula, and this bit's innervated by C7. So there's this kind of segmental origin, um, innervation, and insertion of this particular muscle. And all of it is protected by a rather thick fascial covering. Well, it's easy to remember the nerve. It's the nerve to serratus anterior. So what innervates the serratus anterior? The nerve to serratus anterior. But more correctly, it's called the long thoracic nerve because it has a long course hugging the muscle and supplying it, as I've said, segmentally. In an axillary dissection, it can be far more forward than you think. And so it's necessary to look for it in the medial upper wall of the axillary dissection. You can go downwards, uh, but it's often a lot more anterior and higher up than you think. It's a very flat nerve, about two millimetres in width, so it's quite a sizable nerve, and it has very frequently digitating branches coming off it. You can see it. It's a segmental supply. And if you pinch it with a pair of debakey forceps, you can see the muscle on the side of the chest wall twitch. If it's neuropraxic after an axillary dissection, the scapula wings or it stands out as you press the arms against a wall because the weakened muscle doesn't hold the scapula any longer against the chest wall. And that's a lot more common than you imagine after an axillary dissection. It's not particularly disabling, uh, but it can be relatively obvious. If the nerve is injured in a brachial plexus injury, then that tells us that the injury is quite proximal because this is innervated by the nerve roots. The long thoracic nerve comes from C5, 6, 7, and that's a more proximal injury. It's much less likely to be reparable. And that's an issue I'm going to address um, in the podcast after next. By the way, it's also called the long thoracic nerve of Bell. Uh, after Sir Charles Bell, uh, the Bell of Bell's palsy, um, <clears throat> who was a, a 19th century, um, actually 18th century and early 19th century English, or more correctly, Scottish anatomist, who classified a lot of the structure of the spinal cord and <coughs> divided parts of the central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. He's a very interesting uh, person, as was his brother John Bell. The nerve is C567 root origin, as I've said, and like the dorsal scapular nerve and the nerve to subclavius, these are root branches of the brachial plexus. The C56 branches join at the lateral border of scalenus medius muscle passing over the first serratus anterior digitation to enter the axilla. The bit from C7 passes over this area, but it attaches separately, as I've said, a bit lower down. And typically the nerve lies behind the mid-axillary line, that is behind the lateral branches of the intercostal arteries. But as I've also said, it can lie much more anterior than this. The nerve is subfascial, but I can assure you that that doesn't necessarily protect it during an axillary lymphadenectomy. In action, talking about the muscle, if it acts as in pinching and pushing, 
the scapula protracts and assists in creating an elongated upper limb, really, in effect. The lower part functions with trapezius to rotate the lateral scapula upwards as the arm is abducted and raised. And it's able to keep the vertebral scapula and the thoracic wall or cage close to one another instead of flailing about during arm movements. So then we're next on to the rhomboids. Rhomboid major arises from four vertebral spines, typically T2 to T5, and their interspinous ligaments, or supraspinous ligaments, and inserts into the scapula in that area from the inferior angle to the upper part, the so-called triangular area. That's where the spine uh, is attached <coughs> to the base. And sometimes the muscle has a two-point attachment to the scapula with a little fibrous arch in between. Rhomboid minor is narrow. It arises above from the spines of C7 and T1, so that's an easier way to remember. Remember rhomboid minor from C7 and T1, then rhomboid major from T2 to 5. So rhomboid minor also is inserted into the medial border of the scapula, but it's above that triangular area and around as far as the attachment of the levator scapula over the superior angle of the scapula. Um, these muscles are innervated, the rhomboids, <coughs> as I've already said, by the dorsal scapular nerve, which comes from the root of C5. So if paralysed, that represents, as I've said before, a very high brachial plexus injury. So if you've got evidence that there are root injuries by testing for serratus anterior, testing for the rhomboids, the ability to brace the shoulders back, then this is less likely to be reparable because these are root injuries. They've been pulled off the spinal cord. That will be confirmed by CT myelography, which will show a series of meningocils. And we'll go into that a little bit more, uh, as I say, in the relevant podcast, the one after next, I think it'll be. This nerve runs through the scalenus medius. Um, this is the dorsal scapular nerve. And it's deep to the levator scapulae, lying on the surface of the serratus posterior superior muscle. The muscles, that is the rhomboids, brace the scapula, drawing the vertebral border of the scapula medially and upwards. And they're strict antagonists to the rotary trapezius action, which I've spoken about. But their big job is to act with the trapezius to square the shoulders or to brace or retract the scapula. And if injured, the scapula lies farther from the midline or further from the midline than the non-affected side. And one can examine the patient by asking them to push their elbows backwards against resistance and feeling in the vertebral or medial border territory of where you think the muscle is. Now, just for interest, don't forget the triangle of auscultation, somewhat historical, which lies here at the upper horizontal border of the latissimus dorsi muscle as it forms the triangle with the vertebral border of the scapula and the lateral border of the trapezius. That area is floored in by the fascia lying superficial to the seventh rib, or the sixth and seventh intercostal spaces, where on the left-hand side, that's where the cardiac orifice of the stomach uh, lies, and it used to be used in swallowing to define those cases where there was likely a chalasia of the esophagus or an esophageal tumour. There was a sort of gurgling heard in the auscultation triangle. And that point 
can be also the basis, by the way, for a very limited thoracotomy without really much latissimus dorsi division. And it can also be the site of a rhomboid intercostal block. Now, we're left with two other muscles I want to discuss, and, and then for completion of this podcast, the scapula. These two muscles function as guy ropes, which we've said many times, for the upper limb, one anterior, the other posterior, with vertebral or axial skeletal attachments and insertion in short areas onto the humerus. The anterior one flexes the shoulder, of course, that's the pectoralis major. The posterior one extends the shoulder, and of course, that's the latissimus dorsi muscle. So the pectoralis major. This muscle runs from two heads as an axilla muscle that converges as a trilaminar tendon into a small humeral attachment. It's the anterior axillary wall, or fold, and it has a rolled edge that forms that anterior wall of the axilla. The clavicular head runs from the medial third of the clavicle on its smooth surface and ends as the lateral part, or at the lateral part, of the intertubercular groove as an anteriorly disposed lamina. So the insertion is a little bit more complicated with the formation of anterior, intermediate and posterior laminae. There's a facial extension which moves downwards from that insertion towards the deltoid tuberosity and which actually contributes to the deep fascia of the arm below it. So it's a kind of stabilising fascial extension. It's a little bit like some of the fascia around the knee the insertion point, for example, of biceps femoris contributes to the lateral capsule of the knee joint. So it's a similar kind of arrangement. Uh, separately is the sternocostal head of the muscle, which arises from the lateral part of the anterior manubrium and part of the sternal body, and also from the aponeurosis of the external oblique muscle inferiorly, where the rectus abdominis attaches. Now, deep to this is an origin as slips from the upper six costal cartilages. So pec major comes from the costal cartilages, unlike pec minor coming from the bones. The manubrial fibres of pec major are inserted behind, that is deep to the clavicular fibres, and also as far down as that deltoid tuberosity. And that's the intermediate lamina of the insertional tendon. The sternocostal fibres arising below the sternal angle have a different insertion and they run upwards and laterally to get their point of attachment and they form the posterior lamina of the insertional tendon. So that there's a kind of rounded element, therefore, to the anterior auxiliary fold, the fibres sort of curling around to be attached most posteriorly. So the fibres which arise lowest of all are then inserted uppermost in this posterior lamina or leaflet. The point here is that the rounded end of this tendon is complicated in its attachment, but it gives the axillary border its distinctive anterior curl. It's at its uppermost part, there's an attachment to the capsule of the shoulder joint, but the anterior lamina is inserted at a considerably lower level, obviously. And it's likely that this muscle has some origin from the upper limb bud, but also from the trunk musculature. In 5%, there's a vertical medial element, a bit like a rectus abdominis, but which we could call really a rectus stenalis muscle. Uh, and that's like the vertical muscle in the head and neck, the infrahyoid. So if we think of these vertical muscles, the obvious one, the abdomen's the rectus abdominis. 
in 5% of people you get a rectus sternalis and of course the infrahyoid vertical muscles of the head and neck are the sort of embryological homologies of these. These are the strip-like vertical muscles on the neck, the thorax and the abdomen. And if there is a rectus sternalis, it tends to fuse with the tendon of the sternocleidomastoid. So this all sort of starts to make sense. The pectoralis major is innervated by the brachial plexus, and it's the only muscle receiving all of the five segments of the plexus. C5, 6, 7, as I've said before, the lateral pectoral nerve, C8, T1, the medial pectoral nerve. And as last suggests, C5 and 6 supplies the clavicular head, C7, 8, T1, the sternocostal part. Now this broad muscle is by virtue of its insertion a medial rotator, obviously, of the arm, and together with latissimus dorsi, a very powerful adductor, adductor. Clearly it's a strong flexor of the shoulder joint. Its costal attachment makes it a useful accessory muscle of inspiration as well. And one can assess the arm flexion in abduction or in slight abduction, the sternocostal component, by forcibly adducting the arm against resistance. The medial and lateral pectoral nerves communicate with one another across the front of the axillary artery. Neither of these nerves, medial and lateral pectoral nerves, have cutaneous branches. We then finally got the latissimus dorsi. Now again, as a posterior guy rope, this has a very wide axial origin and a very narrow humeral insertion. We can understand the importance of the origin and the insertion for those who don't particularly like to use those terms, as I say, as a derivative of the upper limb myotomes that lat dorsi is innervated by the brachial plexus. This is its neurological fidelity, as I've said before. And it starts from the spine of the T7 vertebra and includes the spinous processes and supraspinous ligaments of all the lumbar and sacral vertebrae. And it's fleshy as a muscle thoracically, but upon neurotic elsewhere. And it uh, does so there where it fuses with the lumbar fascia. Here it actually has an attachment to the central part of the posterior crest of the ilium. And that's relevant because that forms the lower part of the inferior lumbar triangle of Petit, which is the iliac crest inferiorly, the latissimus dorsi, dorsi posteriorly, and the external oblique anteriorly. The floor of that's the internal oblique. And it's actually less common uh, than the superior lumbar triangle. This is a point where you can, by the way, the inferior lumbar triangle, where you can see an inferior lumbar triangle hernia. Uh, about the only people I've ever seen it uh, in uh, people with chronic obstructive airways disease. Uh, it's, it's actually a less common hernia than the superior lumbar triangle hernia, uh, which uh, the superior lumbar triangle uh, is the triangle of Grinfeldt Leschaft, G R Y N F E L T T hyphen L E S S H A F T, by the way, which is formed by the quadratus lumborum medially, the internal oblique laterally, and superiorly by the 12th rib. And the floor is, of that is the transversalis fascia because it only has a fascial attachment. Superior lumbar triangle hernias are a little bit more common than inferior lumbar triangle hernias. Laterally, the latissimus dorsi, to return to it, arises by flesh from the posterior one-third of the outer lip of the iliac crest. 
There's an upper border of this muscle, which is a horizontal ridge, and that's partially covered by a trapezius, uh, which runs in front of the inferior angle of the scapula, from which it gets, uh, that's latissimus dorsi, a small slip, with the thick lateral border of the muscle running vertically and receiving four slips as reinforcement from the lowest four ribs. These fibres actually interdigitate with those of the external oblique. And all of that then converges to form the posterior fold of the axilla. These fibres sweep around in a rather torsion way the <coughs> teres major to form a very stout tendon which inserts directly into the floor of the intertubercular or bicipital groove. And that spiral turn around the teres major's lower end reverses the latissimus dorsi attachment. Uh, so again, it's a bit complicated like the pectoralis major insertion. The tenderness nature of this insertion at this point is actually very important because it's a landmark during dissection of the axilla. The tendon tells you as you're dissecting that you're at the posterior limit of the dissection. And of course, in front of that area of dissection is the neurovascular supply of the muscle, uh, which is tremendously important to preserve because that may be part of a myocutaneous flap in breast reconstruction after a mastectomy for breast cancer. So you carry your auxiliary dissection as far as the tendon, and you see the tendon, of lap dorsi. And then if you go forwards into that region, you've got to be careful not to injure the thoracodorsal artery and nerve, or the nerve to latissimus dorsi. And I'll go through that when we uh, talk about the brachial plexus, uh, the podcast uh, after next. The nerve supply is, of course, like the nerve supply to serratus anterior is the nerve to serratus anterior. The nerve supply to latissimus dorsi is the nerve to latissimus dorsi. Well, it's part, really, of the posterior cord of the brachial plexus, of course, actually C6, 7 and 8, and is more correctly known as the thoracodorsal nerve. And it runs from this posterior cord into the medial aspect of that muscle, and it's attached to the subscapular vessels with a small, and I might say overrated, subscapular venous plexus. The artery continues as the thoracodorsal artery, which supplies the flap that I was talking about, but it typically gives a small branch, sometimes two, directly into the breast. So this little artery is actually split off the main thoracodorsal artery during a mastectomy or a wide local excision. There's a little arterial branch or two branches that come in to the breast mass that you're taking away. And once you've separated that, you've preserved the whole thoracodorsal artery, which often runs in front of that nerve, but it can split around the nerve. And I must say that once you've done this a few times, you can appreciate the anatomy uh, very much. It's right in front of the tendon. Uh, and there should be no fear to clear out the subscapular venous plexus. It's, it's very much overrated, and it can just be pulled away um, uh, gently with uh, debakey forceps. I really have to thank my old uh, professor of surgery in Dublin, uh, Niall O'Higgins, uh, for uh, teaching me this really important practical part of living anatomy and auxiliary dissection. The action of the muscle is to extend the shoulder. You use it really pulling yourself up to sort of do a chin lift. It's also, as we'd expect, a medial rotator. Uh, and uh, it's that muscle in action that if you hold your arm behind you, like a sort of servant. And it's the adducting and climbing muscle. 
in theory, it's an accessory muscle of inspiration, but you can see it as a kind of sweeping muscle encasing the chest, more as an accessory muscle, perhaps, of expiration. So if we understand all of these muscles, the uh, origins and insertions, we're understanding some of the sidewalls of a thoracotomy, some aspects of the walls of the axilla, and we're understanding that first group of muscles, the vertebra or axioscapular muscles, very important to understand the origins and insertions and functions and innovations of these muscles, all innovative um, by component parts of the brachial plexus. Now, I want to finish off this uh, particular talk, um, uh, if I may, by adding one additional bone, and um, that is the um, scapula. The scapula is formed for the formation of the glenoid cavity and the coracoid process and is thickened on its axillary border and translucent in the body and medially. The posterior spine extends laterally to the acromion and is divisible posteriorly into a superior supraspinatus or supraspinous fossa and inferiorly into an infraspinous fossa. The costal surface is ridged for the attachment of the subscapularis muscle, which runs to the capsule separated from the infraglenoid area by a bursa. The medial margin of this costal surface is the insertion point of the serratus anterior as a thin, long band. And it reminds me of the shape of the country chili for some reason. The first two digitations extend from the superior part of the spine as we've said before, with the next two to the inferior angle, and the last four crowded together on a roughened area on the costal surface of that inferior angle. These bits of the muscle are separated from the subscapularis by the subscapularis fascia. The superior surface shows the notch to accept the suprascapular nerve, and that area is bridged by the transverse scapular ligament to close it off as a foramen, and that partially gives origin to the inferior belly of the omohyoid. As we move laterally to the lateral border, there is, as we know, an attachment of the levator scapulae, and then we come to the insertional points of the rhomboid minor, and around the corner, the rhomboid major. The auxiliary border runs down from the glenoid to the inferior angle, with the first part, the so-called infraglenoid tubercle, which is a rough ridge for the origin of the long head of triceps. That forms a ridge inferiorly and dorsally for the origin also of teres major. The dorsal surface is divided, as I've said, into a concave supraspinous fossa and a large infraspinous fossa separated by the spine. And the supraspinous fossa holds the supraspinatus in a thick fascia. There's a bare area laterally. The infraspinatus attaches in the infraspinous fossa and the teres minor is just below. It's a very thin lateral ridge, which is usually divided into two discrete narrow patches that are separated by a little ridge mark of the circumflex scapular vessels. The infraspinatus is also covered by a very thick fascia extending to the spine, and this has a small tubercle inferiorly mislabeled as the deltoid tubercle, and these confine a hematoma, for example, in the central comminuted fracture of the body. The two fascia are separated, that is the subscapularis and the infraspinatus, but in a way they are connected. And uh, you can therefore form very large 
pre- and post-scapular hematomas in a comminuted fracture of the scapula. As we move to the spine, the lateral rectangular extension, of course, is the acromion, with the trapezius attached to the medial surface of the acromion here, where the lowermost fibres of trapezius attach. And from this, at the posterolateral and then anterior part of the acromion, arises the deltoid muscle, as far as the clavicular facet. Laterally, above the glenoid, is the supraglenoid tubicle for the attachment of the long head of biceps, which at this point is intraarticular. The infraglenoid tubicle is, of course, extraarticular. And there are separating bursi from the subscapularis, supraspinatus, and infraspinatus. The upper end of the pear shaped glenoid cavity, as I've said before, represents a fused epiphysis. The epiphysis runs in the upper part of that glenoid cavity. The coracoid runs forward like a sort of bent finger, and it attaches the coracoclavicular ligament and laterally the coracochromial ligament. Underneath is a kind of weaker coracohumeral ligament, which runs to the anatomical neck of the humerus, and which is clinically not that important. The pectoralis minor is attached at the medial border of the coracoid process, about an inch behind the tip, and the absolute tip is beveled and laterally attaches the short head of biceps and in the medial facet of that bevel, the origin of the coracobrachialis. Now, regarding ossification, the scapula ossifies from cartilage. It's an endochondral ossification with a bony centre at the eighth week at the thickened part of the lateral angle. By birth, the blade and spine are ossified, but the acromion, coracoid, inferior angle, they're all hyaline cartilage. There are secondary centres here, and one forms of the lower glenoid, which appears around puberty and fuses by skeletal maturity. The centre in the coracoid typically ossifies at about 10. You can use that sometimes to age the X-ray, and it fuses with the glenoid by puberty. There are in the scapula at least if one looks at it, perhaps seven centres of ossification, there might be one in the body, a couple for the coracoid process, a couple for the acromion, one for the vertebral body and one for the inferior angle. Um, so in summary, one for the body at um, eight weeks in utero, two centres for the coracoid process, perhaps at 12 and 18 months, uh, the glenoid at around about 10 to 11 years of age, the inferior angle, at about 14 to 20 years of age, quite a wide range there, sometimes appearing earlier at puberty. The acromion, it can be two or in three centres, again, classically at 14 to 20 years of age, but this can appear at puberty. And the medial or vertebral border, again, at around about 14 to 20 years of age, but it can appear earlier at puberty. So that is the end of this particular podcast. Our next one is going to be on the anatomy of the axilla and its contents. Uh, there won't be any osteology um, in that particular one, followed by the brachial plexus and the discussion of the humerus. Um, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.